It's weird to be up here. I've been attending Kings for about seven years now, and it's a, it really is a privilege to, to be here, to serve you know, as a community group leader, to serve on the band, and now to have the chance to bring the Word of God to you this morning. If you could, please turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 6, verse 37 through 42. Luke chapter 6, verses 37 through 42. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the back. You're more than welcome to take one. It's our gift to you. We're going to be continuing our expository preaching series through the Gospel according to Luke, which we've entitled Mission to the World, because Luke gives a special focus to the outsider, the others of society, and how does Jesus engage with them? Now, for those of you who might be newer to Kings or to Christianity, expository preaching is the practice of making the focus of the text the focus of the message. Preachers are not here to talk about what they want to talk about. They're here to proclaim what the text proclaims. And part of the reason that we practice this chapter by chapter, verse by verse, is so that we get the full counsel of God. We don't just get to skip around to our favorite passages and favorite topics. We have to face whatever passage comes next, no matter how difficult. Now, some texts are difficult because they are hard to understand. That's what we dealt with when we went through the book of Isaiah, right? Other texts are difficult because they're hard to hear. The passage we have in front of us is one such passage because it exposes a sin in us that is, I think, more of a struggle with than we care to admit. And for some of you, this sermon may be hard to hear. But I want you to know that I'm not about to tell you anything that I haven't been telling myself for the past several weeks. I'm not going to try and call out a sin in you that I don't see staring back at me in my mirror every morning. And church, we need to know that if God is challenging our sin, he's doing so because he loves us too much to let us stay in it. The sin that's described in this text is destructive. And if we indulge in it, it will disintegrate our gospel community and it will ruin our gospel witness. And it has done this for so many churches and so many individual Christians. Now maybe you're here and you've been on the receiving end of this sin, or you've seen friends and family hurt in the church by this sin. I want you to know that while other Christians may not take this sin seriously, there is no one who takes it more seriously than Jesus. Don't give up on him without hearing what he has to say about it. With that, let's pray. Lord and God, I really feel inadequate to the task because I feel like my own sins have been displayed in this text. I don't feel worthy to come before, before you, before this church, and present your word. But I take just comfort and hope in the fact that it is your word that is powerful. It's your word that burns like fire. It's your word that shatters stone. It's your word that brings life to the dead. And so we ask that your word be put on display here. That we would see you clearly and beautifully. That we understand the gospel. And that if anything happens today, it's because you've been at work in the text. Get me out of the way. Let yourself be seen as the glorious God that you are. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to pick up in chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Plain. Jesus has gathered the disciples, and he's preaching this message to them. And a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Lou took us into a new section of the sermon, and he told us that here we have Jesus teaching his disciples what does it mean to follow him? What does it mean to be a disciple? So that gives us some extremely important context here. The commands we see in this passage are flowing out of our status as disciples. They're not things we do to gain status as a disciple. 
This is an important distinction here, people. Now, Jesus teaches that one way being a disciple changes you is it's going to change how you interact with other people. Pastor Lou took us through the positive implications of that in verse 27 to 36, saying that in their, meaning the disciples' regeneration, they are to love in an extraordinary way in comparison to the ways those outside the community love. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Having shown what does love motivated by the gospel look like, he now takes time to stop and show what love does not look like. He's going to delve into religious hypocrisy, self-righteousness, and judgmentalism. And that's where we find ourselves this morning. But before we delve into the text, there's an issue we got to deal with here. If a non-Christian knows any passage of the Bible, it's probably going to be the opening to verse 37. Judge not, or you will be judged. And people tend to take this passage and they use it to teach that Christianity is against judgment in principle. You can't call out people. You can't call out sin. You can't call out false doctrine. You'll even see this in some churches, this sort of turning off of our brains and our voices in favor of this sentimental, inclusive Christianity that doesn't value or proclaim truth. But here's the thing. The same Bible that tells us, judge not or you'll be judged, tells us that our God is the judge of the secrets of the hearts of men, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. The same Bible that tells us, judge not or you'll be judged, records the prophet's judgments against the injustice and the corruption of the nations. The same Bible that says, judge not or you'll be judged, includes a book that is literally called Judges. I think I could probably end with that, but I got more. The same Bible that tells us, judge not or you'll be judged, tells us in John 7, 24, do not judge by appearances, but judge with a right judgment. So don't let people gaslight you into thinking that Christianity is against any form of judgment. What Jesus is getting at is that there is a wrong way to judge, an unloving attitude that is devoid of the gospel. This morning we're going to look at three examples of gospel-devoid judgment and ask, how does the gospel remedy this in us? We've got three, uh, three themes we're going to look at, the inconsistent standard, the inconsistent example, and the inconsistent priority. We'll start with the inconsistent standard, verse 37 through 38. So what happens when we don't bring the gospel to our understanding of judgment? Jesus points out that one effect will be that we develop an inconsistent standard. We'll be quick to judgment and condemnation toward one another, all the while claiming God's forgiveness and grace toward ourselves. But here's the thing. God's standards are not inconsistent, and God does not show partiality. God will not tolerate true for thee, but not for me sort of attitudes. And so Jesus warns us in the text that the measure you use will be the measure, will be, it'll be measured back to you. You don't get to claim grace and live in judgment. Essentially what he's doing in the text is calling our bluff. He's making us consistent. You want to judge? You'll be judged. You want to condemn? You'll be condemned. Forgiveness, we met with forgiveness. Grace with grace. You'll get what you give in full. That's what Jesus means when he says, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be put into your lap. This was an agricultural reference of preparing something like wheat to sell. In order to make sure the container was truly full, you'd make sure the grain is measured properly and the container's pressed down and shaken to make sure it could be filled to the brim. The buyer's going to get the full amount. That's what Jesus is doing here. You don't get to have an inconsistent standard. You'll get what you give, all of it whether forgiveness or judgment. Now that brings us to an important question 
Who is it that's going to judge us? Who is it that's going to forgive us? Is this something from people? Or is this from God? I contend that it's both. I mean, if you're prone to treat people harshly, that's probably how they'll treat you. If you're kind to them, that's probably how they'll treat you. It's not an absolute rule. We can be the kindest people in the world and still be treated awful. You know, in fact, the Bible tells us that the world will hate us for the sake of Christ, even though being a Christian is supposed to make us forgiving and gracious and generous and you know, the kind of person you actually want to be with. So this is a general rule. But I also think he's speaking about our relationship with God. Because the Bible doesn't divorce our relationship with God from our relationships with one another. I mean, think about the end of the previous section in Luke 6. We are merciful to others as Christ is merciful to us. So it's both. That leads to a second important question. If judgment or forgiveness comes from God, does that mean that my standing with him is dependent on my behavior? Will he only forgive me if I am forgiving? If I've ever judged or condemned someone, does that mean God will judge or condemn me? That's a terrifying way to read the text. It's also not a biblical way to read it either. A general rule of interpretation is to interpret unclear passages according to clear passages. And from beginning to end, the Bible affirms that salvation is by the grace of God alone. Salvation's of the Lord, Jonah 2.9. And we can't please him, by, please him by offering our lives to him because our lives are like filthy rags in his sight, Isaiah 64.6. In fact, all that morality can do is show us how we fail to be moral, Romans 3.20. And therefore we are saved by grace, through faith, not of ourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. We learned this as a church when we went through Galatians together, especially Galatians 2, 16. We know that a person is not justified through works of the law, like forgiving one another, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we clearly cannot understand that God's forgiveness of me is predicated on my forgiving those who are around me. So what does the passage mean? I think it means that our judgment or forgiveness of others is demonstrative of whether or not God has forgiven us. You see, forgiven people tend to forgive. Think about Ephesians 4.32. We forgive as Christ has forgiven us. Because how can I refuse to forgive you of your minor sins when God has forgiven me of my worst sins? To be a Christian is to be quick to forgive. Therefore, if we're prone to judgment or condemnation, meaning that this could be described of us regularly, we're not talking about one-off incidents. We're all going to have those. Okay? If we are always prone to assume the worst of others, to extend no mercy, or if we have, as Daryl Bach puts it, a judgmental and censorious perspective towards others that holds them down in guilt and never seeks to encourage them toward God, what we're demonstrating is that we've never experienced the gospel. And therefore, we have far more to fear than the judgments and condemnations of those who are around us. A judgmental heart will face a judgmental God inconsistency will come to an end, and the judgment and condemnation of this life will be met with the judgment and condemnation of God. By contrast, if we're prone to forgive, as people who have been forgiven, slow to judge, quick to restore, we're demonstrating that we have experienced the gospel, and therefore we have far more to be encouraged by than the forgiveness or grace of those around us. The consistency of forgiveness and grace shown in this life will be a testimony before God that we have experienced his forgiveness and grace. Practically speaking, I think this teaches that Christians, we need to have a consistent standard. 
if we love grace, we need to be slow to judgment. As that's a pretty general statement, let's put some meat on those bones of an idea. When we see a moral tragedy, say a school shooting, or sexual abuse, or something like that, our inclination is to cry for justice. See evildoers brought to an end. In fact, I think that's our response whenever we're wronged. Justice, I've been wronged. It must be made right. And that's not a bad thing. I mean, that's one of the reasons that King's Chapel supports local partners like the Capital City Rescue Mission in its fight for the homeless, or Alpha Care Pregnancy Center in its fight for life. We should want to see wrongs made right. But when that inclination dominates our hearts and our minds, it becomes very dangerous. Because when we're constantly crying, justice, 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 we're speaking without understanding. Because we don't know what it means to cry for justice. Let's illustrate this point. There's a movie called The Quiet Man. It's a story of an Irish-born man who grows up in America and after a tragedy decides to move back to his native Ireland to live a, a nice, quiet life in his small town. Unfortunately, the quiet life seems to constantly elude him. In one of the scenes, a small crowd is gathered outside the house of a local town bully, including a member of the IRA, the Irish Republican Army. The town bully sees the commotion and, noticing the IRA member, asks him, so the IRA is in on this too? The IRA member, grinning ear to ear, replies, if it were, not a scorched stone of your fine house would be left standing. Not a scorched stone of your fine house would ever be left standing. I think the same is true of God's justice. If the justice of God were truly unleashed, not one soul would be left standing before the judgment seat of God. You know, there would be no forgiveness and no grace, nothing but the fiery wrath of God's judgment and condemnation. If justice is truly what we want, justice will be what we get. And no Christian wants that. So when we see wrongs, we need to temper our hearts with the gospel. Being quick to listen, slow to speak, quick to assume the best, slow to assume the worst. We should be marked by patience and restoration, kindness and hopefulness, giving every possible chance to see the situation rectified as God has been patient and kind with us. And if we must judge, it must never be self-righteous, must never be hypocritical. It must come from people who are brokenhearted over their own sins. The words of our judgments have to be matched by the tears in our eyes for the people we judge. Family, the wrong way to love those who are around us is to come with an inconsistent standard that offers judgment while claiming forgiveness. So let us, as a people who have experienced forgiveness and grace, be marked as a people who give forgiveness and grace, who temper our inclination toward judgment with the reality that God has been merciful to us. Amen? Let's move on to our next theme, the inconsistent example, verses 39 through 40. What happens when we don't bring the gospel to our understanding of judgment? Jesus points out that another effect will be an inconsistent personal example. We will call people to do what we ourselves will not do. In a sense, what happens is that our discipleship becomes distorted. Now, before we go further, what is discipleship? Because we're not going to understand this passage if we don't understand what this word means. 
If you've gone through any sort of discipleship program, maybe you had to do things like Bible memorization verses, maybe you had to learn a little theology, and then that's important. I'm all in favor of that. But that's not discipleship. Discipleship is more than intellectual formation. It's about personal transformation. When you become a disciple of someone, you learn to be like them, to do what they do, say what they say, think how they think. You probably have seen this in your own life. You know, children become like their parents. As a parent, that is terrifying. <laughs> Absolutely terrifying. I pray every night, like, please do not be like me. Please be better than me. Students become like their teachers. Followers like their leaders. And even church members like their pastors. Those who are in authority shape their people. That's discipleship. And discipleship in the gospel is no different. I mean, that's part of the reason that Pastor Lou tells us before sermons, we shouldn't just want information, but transformation. We heard Pastor Chris pray this just beforehand. Because it shouldn't just be an intellectual exercise. When you embrace the gospel, you become a disciple, things are going to look different in your life. You see, the gospel is a two-sided coin. Justification, sanctification. In justification, God declares us righteous. In sanctification, God is in the process of making us righteous. Justification is about our legal status before God. Sanctification is about my character and practice before God. Make sense? Well, let's, give, let's look at an example. Romans 8, 1 and 2. You see this double-sided aspect of salvation. In 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We see a change of legal status. I'm no longer condemned if I am in Christ. That's justification language. But in 8.2, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death, we see a change of practice. I have been set free from the law of sin. I'm no longer enslaved to sin. That's sanctification language. It's not one or the other. It's both. Now, that's all well and interesting if you're a theology nerd like me. But why does it matter? Well, I'm glad you asked. See, that framework is essential to understanding the thrust of Jesus' argument to the disciples. If disciples become like the ones they follow, what happens when the disciple-maker is out of sorts? Now, there's some debate in different commentaries as to who's being addressed here. Some people say this is about not being like the Pharisees, or that this is about picking good leaders like, you know, um, Jesus to follow. Sunday school answer applies here. And there's certainly truth to those arguments. I mean, if you follow the Pharisees, you're probably going to act like a Pharisee. And it is important to select a good leader like Jesus to follow. But I don't think that's what Jesus had in mind. I mean, he's talking to his disciples, not disciples of the Pharisees. And if these people are disciples of Jesus, they've already chosen who they're following. I think Jesus' point is, is that if you are a disciple-making body on mission, you're declaring and demonstrating the gospel for the glory of God, how can you lead people where you're not going? How can they be what you're not? And so Jesus brings two examples to show our inconsistent example and why it is so destructive to discipleship. He uses the example first of a blind man. How can the blind lead the blind? They'll both fall into a pit, Jesus says. That person can't lead. So it is with disciples on mission to the world. If disciples can't see the truth, how can we point anyone to it? If we can't see the glory of God, how can we point anyone to it? If we don't know the way, how can we walk it? Secondly, he uses the example of discipleship. 
If a teacher is inadequate and students become like their teachers, the student's going to be even more inadequate. So it is with disciples on mission to the world. I mean, if disciples aren't repenting of their sins, how can they expect someone else to repent of their sins? If disciples aren't putting their sins to death, how can they expect anyone else to put their sins to death? If disciples aren't running after Jesus, why should anyone else? A disciple-making body on mission cannot lead where it does not go. It cannot call others to be what it is not. And it should not, because that's not consistent with the gospel that transforms us. I mean, if we are disciples, then we have been given eyes to behold the glory of God, to know the word of God. We are no longer blind. Let's not walk like we are. And if we're, you know, then we can make disciples who, lead, who see the truth. And if we're disciples, then we are new creations in Christ, amen? We're not who we used to be. We have new hearts and a new law that guides our lives. And if we're not the people we used to be, let's not walk like we used to. Then we can make disciples who live the truth. Practically speaking, there's a serious implication here for us. First and foremost is that gospel mission requires gospel transformation. Because how can we make disciples of all nations if we aren't acting like disciples? How can we lead people where we're not going? There are few impediments so detrimental to a missional church as an inconsistent example. Let's make this a little more real. Over the past several years, more and more non-Christians have been raising concerns about the inconsistent conduct of not only some American churches, but of Christians that they're meeting. Whether it's the weaknesses of our marriages, the horror of sexual abuse, domineering leadership in a pulpit, pornography addiction, slanderous online conduct, just to start the list, many non-Christians look on and say, how can you call on us to take this seriously if you won't take this seriously? And our conduct is supposed to open doors for gospel conversations. Instead, it's becoming a barrier to gospel conversations. Church, those of us who are called to make disciples, which is all of us, we have to be disciples. We need to, as Philippians 1.27 says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. I'm not trying to guilt trip us all. I'm not trying to just put pressure on you in an unbiblical way. And if it's coming across the way, I'm sorry. But what I'm saying is that we need to be who we are. We need to be who we are. Those of us who have been justified must also be sanctified. Our lives are telling a story and the world's listening for good or ill. What story are we telling them? What example are we setting for them? Parents, what example are you setting for your children? Teachers, what example do you set for your students? Workers, what example are you setting for your peers? Those of you who are in leadership, what example are you setting for those who you lead? We cannot expect the world to go where the church will not go first. We cannot make disciples unless we act as disciples. Family, the wrong way to love someone is to come with an inconsistent example, saying one thing with our words and another with our lives. Let us, as those who have been justified by God, also be sanctified by God, so that when we make disciples, we're calling people to walk the path with us, not ahead of us. 
Let our lives be examples to inspire, not obstacles to overcome. Finally, let's look at the inconsistent priority, verses 41 and 42. So what happens when we don't bring the gospel to our understanding of judgment? Jesus points out one final effect. We develop an inconsistent priority in regards to sin. We'll become fixated on the sins of others while neglecting the real and serious sins within us. It's almost a laughable scene that Jesus describes here. Just imagine it, if you will. Some, some lunatic running around pointing out a little touch and a little speck around your eye, all the while ignoring the enormous log sticking out of their own eye. It almost looks like something out of a Marx Brothers skit. And it would be funny, too, if it weren't so realistic. Because Jesus makes the point that when we focus on the minor sins of others at the expense of our own sins, that's exactly what we look like. That's not just foolish. That, that's ridiculous. But that's exactly how sin operates. You see, the best way to never be found is to never be sought. If I don't look for you, I can't find you. That's the strategy that our sin often takes against us, and that's the strategy that we see at work here in the text. P.G. Ryken notes that here the problem is not that the person cannot see at all, but that he cannot see as well as he thinks he can. Sin is more than happy to, be, to let us be observant enough to see the specks in other people's eyes, but not so observant that we see the log in our own. That's how sin hides in plain sight. It creates inconsistent priorities. Sin matters, but it's their sin that has our attention and hatred, not our own. But Jesus will not stand for this sort of inconsistent priority. To him, sin is wrong, whether it's without or within, and he will not tolerate the inconsistency of his people calling out sins in others while practicing even greater sins. And so he minces no words here. He says, you hypocrites. You hypocrite. This is where we get our word for actor. Two-faced, one way in public, another in private. I'm not going to lie, I felt that one when I was studying the text. I mean, the contrasting level of arrogance and ignorance that you need to have this sort of attitude is astonishing, and I hate seeing how naturally this, this sin attitude comes to me. And it does come naturally. It's something I'm trying to work on, but it's hard, and it's heavy. But I have to take it seriously, because Jesus takes it seriously. And not just then, but now. Because if it was wrong then, it's wrong now. A couple of summers ago, Pastor Lou took us through the letters to the churches in Revelation. And in those letters, God commended or reprimanded churches for their faithfulness or lack thereof to the gospel. If God were writing such a letter today, what would he say of King's Chapel? What would he say of you? What would he say of me? It's sobering, isn't it? Could the word hypocrite describe us? It'd be easy, wouldn't it? It'd be so easy. I mean, we live in a culture where it is so, so easy to fixate on the sins of, others, of other people. We have laptops and tablets and smartphones carrying the newest outrage, the latest scandal, the worst of the worst of the worst in the world. 
And we're told that we need to call these things out. That silence is violence. And so we become fixated on the sins around us to the expense of sins within us. You hypocrite, Jesus says. Two-faced. That's a hard word. But thankfully, Jesus doesn't stay there. And he gives us a path forward out of this. He says, take the log out of your own eye. And then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. That's how the gospel works. The gospel begins with self-examination, not cross-examination. It begins with a cry like Peter's, I am a sinful man. Or like David's, have mercy on me, O God. With a realization that, as Tim Keller described, I am more wicked than I ever dared to believe. The gospel journey doesn't start with my triumphant declaration that I am so amazing. It begins with an admission of surrender. I am more screwed up than I could possibly conceive. The gospel looks inward first and takes accountability for my sins before I even think of looking at yours. The priority is on, is on our sins first. And this is how we're supposed to do life in the church. I mean, look at the text. It says, how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye? That's familial language because the church is a family. And when we become part of the church family, we're supposed to become part of a community that, that comforts us when we hurt and encourages us when we're down, challenges us when we slow and corrects us when we wander. But as Al Morris put it, it is impossible to put our brother right before we have dealt with our own shortcomings. We cannot see clearly enough for the job. Sometimes Christians don't understand that. And that never ends well. You may have experienced this before. The hypocrisy of some Christ followers calling you out for minor issues, all the while acting no different than the world. Angry, gossiping, complaining, lazy, cruel, lustful, and it wrangles you, and it should. After being treated like that, you might feel like you don't need your local church anymore. You might even feel like walking away from the faith if this is how people are going to act. But here's the thing. That's not how church life is meant to be. And there's no one who takes that more seriously than Jesus. In the gospel, we self-examine before we cross-examine. Our priority begins first with us and then to other people. Practically speaking, there's a serious question we need to wrestle with, and it's one that the world often throws at us. Does this text mean I cannot address sins in others until all my sins are dealt with? Do I need to clean out my own house before I look at yours? Because if that's the case, I can never address other people's sins. I mean, the Bible tells us, you know, in 1 John 1.8, if we say we have no sins, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Or James 3, 2, we, we all stumble in many ways. We'll never completely rid ourselves of sin in this life. I'm more aware of my sins now, after all this time being a Christian, than I was when I first became a Christian. So if that's the case, we could never call out sin. But the Bible doesn't call us to turn a blind eye to evil around us. It is real. And it must be confronted, whether it's practices like the slaughter of unborn babies and abortion, rampant pornography, sexual abuse, the crisis of fatherlessness. 
or false teachings such as the prosperity, name and claim it gospel, progressive Christianity, legalism, Gnosticism, we must speak out as a church. If you are aware of the log in your eye and you're pulling it out, even if you're still in the process, you can call out sin. What the text is against is a fixation on the sins of others to the neglect of our own sins. Our first and most violent effort is reserved for the sin that wages war on our own souls. As we do that, we can speak to the sins that are around us. Family, the wrong way to love someone is to come with an inconsistent priority, fixating on their sins at the expense of our own. So let us, as those who have been awakened to our own sinfulness, reserve our greatest criticism and hatred for our own sins first. When our sins are the first priority, addressing the sins of others can take its rightful place. As I pointed out at the beginning of the message, this sermon is, about, is supposed to be about what it means to be a disciple. And one of the ways being a disciple changes you is that it causes you to love differently than how the world loves. And it's hard to love when you're marked by judgmentalism, religious hypocrisy, and self-righteousness. And it is hard to be a community of disciples when we're inconsistent in our standards, our examples, and our priorities. The question is, what are we going to do about it? I'll tell you what we're not going to do. It's not going to be do better, try harder, get your house in order, and I'll guilt trip you until you do it. The problem is that we don't have enough gospel. So our solution needs to be more gospel, more the fact that Jesus bore the judgment and the condemnation that you and I so richly deserve for our sins at the cross. And if he has borne our rightful judgment, what judgment can I ever hold against you? You can't be judgmental, hypocritical, and self-righteous if you understand what God has done for us. And so we preach that gospel week in and week out. We sing it, we pray it, we read it, we declare it, we demonstrate it. When we wake and when we sleep, in work, in rest, in the noise and the quiet, in the good times and the bad, we preach the gospel to ourselves. As the band comes up, we're going to sing that gospel together. Church, do you understand that gospel this morning? Do you understand that there's something drastically wrong with us? That we're more screwed up in our hearts and our minds than we could possibly imagine? That we're sinners? And all of the judgment and criticism and condemnations of other people can never compensate for the dismal state of our own hearts. I'm not just talking to people who are maybe here for their first time. I don't care if, you've been, if this is your first time or you've been attending King's Chapel your entire life. We can all fall onto this. We can all fall into trying to hide our faults behind the faults of others. So this prayer is one that we can all pray. Just go to God in prayer and tell him, I got nothing. I've screwed this life up. I have sinned again and again and again. I don't deserve another chance, but please, please, have mercy on me. And when you do, you will hear him say, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Your sins are forgiven, and if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So go to the Son. Go to Jesus.
He can save you. He can forgive you. He can make you new. He can set you free. He died for sins. And he rose that we might be new creations. And when you become a new creation, the thought of being judgmental, hypocritical, or self-righteous shouldn't even occur to you. Because it's hard to be these things when you know that you are saved by grace and grace alone. If you have questions about this, you want to know more about what this means, you can come speak with me or any of the pastors after the service. Let's pray. Lord God, this, this has been a hard word from, from your scripture. It wasn't easy to preach. It probably wasn't easy for some of us to hear. But God, you are good and you do good. And if you have given us a word, you have given it for our joy. You have given it for our good. You have given it for freedom, for the forgiveness of sins, for a new life as a new community of disciples called the church. And so, God, we, we pray that this word would sink down deep in our hearts, that we would be so aware of grace, that we would be on guard against our, our own sins. I pray this for me. I pray this for everyone who is attending, that the gospel would just be pressed into our hearts today. And if there are those who just are trapped in this sin and don't know how to get out, I pray they would know freedom because of this message. And as people who don't know you, I pray that they would know that their judgment has been borne by you and that they need to trust and repent of their sins knowing that you will accept them and love them. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.